0: Football on Off The Ball
1: With Sky All the football you love in one place Across Sky Sports, BT Sport and Premier Sports Delighted to be joined on the line by the former Reading and Leeds United manager Brian McDermott How are you keeping Brian?
0: I'm good Nathan, how's yourself?
1: Very well, thanks a lot for uh, joining us Uh, I say former Reading, former Leeds United manager You've held a lot of other interesting roles in football as well and, uh, And an important role in the development of Irish players through the years, uh, the likes of Shane Long, Kevin Doyle. Uh, I heard you're so good at spotting players that you saw Shane Long do a warm-up before a League of Ireland game, and that was enough to convince you that there was something there
0: to bring him to Reading? God, that makes me sound like an amazing scout. Doesn't it? <laughs> I don't believe a word of it. Yeah, look, he... Um, so, yeah, Shane was... Um, we knew Shane through Eamon's brother, Patrick Dolan. And, yeah, he said he was a good player, uh, loads of potential. I watched him play and I knew that, um, I knew how athletic he was and everything that goes, everything that goes with Shane. And uh, he turned out to be an amazing fella and a great signing for us. He lived with me, actually, for the first six months that he came over. He lived right. In the house. Wow. How was that? It was great. He was... Um, He's no different today than he was then. He's just a great guy, hasn't changed. um, He's just a really good fella.
1: I presume he had the guitar out on a regular basis? Yes,
0: yes, he did. And I didn't realise he could play. We had uh, a party here once and um, he played. He blew everybody away. Actually, the the funny thing about it was um, the first day he went into training, he, um, we didn't have too many players at the time. It was 2005, six season. And he was coming into the training ground. Kevin was there. And he was obviously only 18 years of age. And I stuck a guitar in the back of the boot. And uh, he, 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 we went into lunch and it was all the first team players. Steve Copple was in there, our manager at the time. And I brought the guitar out and I gave it to him. and made him play in front of all the lads. He was absolutely devastated. Like devastated, didn't want to do it. But I knew... Because he was that good, that his credibility would go through the roof as soon as he started playing. Forget his football, and he played, and he. I'm not sure he was too happy with the fact that uh, I made I made him do it. But ah, oh, listen, he was great, absolutely great, and the lads loved him because you can't not love him, you know. You just love him as a fellow.
1: His career is one I think that's maybe underestimated in this part of the world. We obviously remember the goal against Germany, but just how long he played in the Premier League and how many goals he scored over fifty Premier League goals. Like it's easy to say in hindsight, but when you do look back in those first times you saw him, did he did he have something something different to a lot of the players you were looking at in Ireland?
0: Um, I, you know it's hard to make comparisons on any players. You know you like. He was just, he was a young boy who was athletic. He didn't start playing until he was 14. And, um, but what he could do, he could jump, and he could run and he was tough. So he had this kind of criteria. And when he first came across, technically he needed work. And we kind of put him back with the academy players for a short period of time. And we started to develop him, but he developed really, really quickly. You know, technically he started to get there. Yeah. And um, he started to know exactly what he was doing. He just needed work, but potential. It was he was the great. It was the best example I know of potential. And the fact he's fulfilled his potential, you know, he's played for his country how you know, many times, and he scored goals for his country, and he's 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 done so many amazing things. Got fifty plus goals in the Premiership. Um, that that's
1: interesting. Yeah. And you you you've obviously been scouting up until until recently with, with Arsenal and at a, at a really high level, and like. You talk about his technical ability there. So, you know, he comes from a hurling background, so he has that, that inbuilt toughness in him. As you say, he's, he's lightning quick. Uh, he's able to get up and win a header. But you sort of assume, even even in the sort of mid-2000s, that you needed the technical ability before you could even go to England. Do, you obviously had a confidence that actually the physical side was taken care of, that you could teach him the technical stuff
0: he needed. Listen, we bought him for €30,000, <laughs> <poor. laughs> So let's be fair. It wasn't a mess. If, if it didn't work out, it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't something that we were overly concerned about. We knew he could run. We knew he could jump. You know, he doesn't look the biggest, but he jumps to six foot five. You know, he wins a loads of headers. Um, now, in hindsight, that's what we know. But he could do that then. And it was just trying to get. It was just trying to find a bit with the ball and trying to do his work with the ball. He did a lot of work in the academy with Eamon Dolan. And um he improved, he came off the bench for Steve Koppel's team in the two thousand and five six season where we got promotion um and he just kept working and he kept grafting um and it all came for him and listen it was it was it was, it was the perfect storm.
1: Everybody who's listening knows a player who went to England and didn't make it and got homesick. And either the standard was too much, or they just they just couldn't hack the life of staying in digs and the relentlessness that's expected of a professional, a young professional in an academy. That decision for for Shane to to go and live with you for six months was that was that his decision, your decision? Was it something you would do on a regular basis when young Irish players would come
0: over? It was my decision. I, I, I knew. Uh, See, a lot of the players come across when they're fifteen, sixteen years of age and I think it's too early. Um and the League of Ireland, playing in the League of Ireland, playing games in that standard, for me is a better st- It's better to do that. Sometimes it's better than going through the academy system, in my in my view. Toughens you up, makes you grow up quickly. I just wanted him to know that he was he was in a good environment where we where we lived. And and who the else did I have here? I had a few of the lads here actually. Um yeah, who stayed and I was very happy to have them because I went to Sweden in nineteen eighty-six and uh I went to Sweden in nineteen eighty-four and I remember being on my own and I thought, "Oh, this is hard work in nineteen eighty-four in particular. And uh, I, I you, you don't want someone coming across and just leaving them there. You know, you want them to be part of a family and and, and Shane just, Shane was part of the family really for that sort of four or five months. Then he found himself a flat, uh, his mum came across, he bought himself a car.
1: And then he went his own way. We've actually been having this conversation on the show over the last week or so about players staying because of Brexit, that they're going to have to stay those two years longer, which for their maturity and their education, it feels like is a real positive thing, but also questioning whether the League of Ireland Academy system is ready to educate them football-wise the way they would be if they had gone to an academy. Have you thoughts on that, the the fact that a lot of players uh, and Evan Ferguson, if he was moving now, would have to wait till he was 18 and the impact that might have on Irish players
0: trying to break through? I think some it will work for, some it won't work for. You know, that's the thing. Um, I like the idea they come across at 18, 19. Doyler, Kevin came across at 21, you know, and look what happened to him. Mm. So he was ready. He was like, he was match ready virtually and he started to play quite regularly and um he was playing for cork um yeah so i i kind of like that way forward uh, i just think just just wait at home just stay at home for a period of time play your football be with your family be comfortable and when you're right and you can and you feel ready to come then come then come and play that that would be my preferred route if i was a parent so to speak
1: uh, we've gone off on a, a bit of a tangent. I didn't expect uh, ten minutes on on Shane Long, but I certainly worth talking about your your interest in Ireland. uh wasn't just a professional interest. Your dad was from Sligo. Your mum was from Clare. There is Irish blood through and through.
0: Oh yeah. So I yeah. Look, my story is quite sad actually. Um, not so sad now. I've kind of come to some kind of terms with it. I um, when I was seventeen in nineteen seventy nine, I. I I, I had a choice of Ireland and England and um, I spoke to my father. My, Don Howe was the English assistant manager at the time. Don Howe was, a, he he was at Arsenal. And we were sort of, we, and he, t- he sort of said, you know, you've got to play for England and this, that and the other. I've got Irish bones, Irish blood. I played for England in a youth tournament and um, I kind of think, of, I remember about sort of six to eight months later after playing in this, thing i think oh my god i i don't belong here this is not so i felt like a complete imposter as far as what the the country i was playing for there's no disrespect to this country i live here but my blood is completely irish and i felt a complete traitor and i felt like that for years and years and years and years and that was one of the the issues i had you know it was one of the major issues i had and why i turned to something i shouldn't have done um just to try to numb that feeling um and you know i always say to people god I'd, you know i'd give anything now to one irish cap mm. and maybe if i'd have had that one irish cap i wouldn't have gone through the stuff that i went through in my life as far as football's concerned and, and actual life's concerned. but maybe it wasn't the truth i don't know but um yeah it was uh for me it was and i, and I think about it every day even now to wow. this day right even to this day and um and that it, was it, the rule then was
1: sad. because you had played for the England under 17s yeah
0: yeah you could never switch was, no you couldn't and and you know it wasn't and if you'd left me another 8 months I would have had much more of a mind of my own you know I I I would have I would have done that's not right for me um but that was where that's what happened at that time um which is sad really and I and I and I do presentations now and I talk about this a lot I talk about identity and I talk about what that's like for me. And I kinda of made my mind up. I thought, you know what? I have to make it up to the whole of Ireland. I have to. I know they're never gonna forgive me. Listen, no one cares, Nathan, you know, that mm. that it's I'm sure that no one does. But I thought I've gotta become the Republic of Ireland manager. That's gonna that's gonna make me That'll feel on the pain. Me. Yeah, but uh, obviously that didn't happen. And when you think back to that time and
1: and Don how like even still we have the conversation of English players are more valuable than Irish players and was that an impact, say, on Declan Rice, who did play for Ireland and was still able to switch afterwards? What were the conversations you were having away from Arsenal at that time? Were you, like, did you talk to your parents about it? Were yeah. were they so comfortable? Parents,
0: or yeah, so my dad obviously was from Sligo, and he, we always had a bit of a fear of authority, and if so, you know, the Arsenal, we were always nervous of you know when you're a professional footballer. You have to be so respectful of the coaches, so respectful of the manager, whatever they say goes. And that's kind of how it was in the 1970s. Um, and that's what it was like for me. Uh, and I was always kind of pretty fearful, really. I was fearful of dressing rooms and I'd never thought I was good enough in the dressing room. And, you know, this kind of thing. So my, my dad said, look, what does the coach say? Said, the coach says you play for England, but he's assistant manager for England and he was part of it. So that's what happened at that time. But, but later on, like not much later on, I kind of knew, I think oh, this is the biggest mistake I've ever made in my whole life. And I've told this story many, many mm. times um, and I can't do anything about it. And I reflect back and sometimes I dream, sometimes I dream I've played for a and I've got a green shirt and I wake up really sort of quite elated. And I think, oh, my God, I, I, I didn't. So, you know, I, I kind of try and sort of talk to younger players now. And say, look, you know, it's so important that you get that 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 right. Now, your Declan Rice situation, I don't know what his family's situation is. I think it's his grandparent mm. and his mum and dad are English. I don't know.
1: Yeah, I think his dad. that dad that definitely has very close links with Ireland. But obviously there is a, a not as strong a connection with an Irish community as the one you had.
0: No, absolutely. And that, listen, I know about it. That's where, you know, I, I was born. And I, there's a lot of people of my generation, born in England, of Irish parents who feel the same way as I feel. You know, that real strong connection to um, to Ireland and the community.
1: Well, Kevin Kilbane uh, does a lot of work with us and he speaks about when he was at Preston and was getting called up or been linked with an England under 21 and the pressure that was being put on within the club to go... And play for England, and he probably just was fortunate. He went the other way and said, "No, he has the exact same roots, the same sort of heritage as you have." And obviously, we saw what he went on for. Uh, that, like that, that missing a one cap. It's funny with Jim Goodwin on, who uh, is probably someone you can empathise at the moment with the strains he's going through as a yeah. as a manager. And he did get one cap, and I had him on the show recently. I was asking him, like, one cap is it enough for you? Like, are you, uh, are you happy with one cap, or do you wish it was more? And he said, actually. Uh, which won't make it feel any better, that, you know, the one cap actually did, it, it, it's something you can look back on and get that yeah. sense of satisfaction.
0: Yeah, I mean, the thing is with Kevin, is, he was older as well. And, you know, I remember speaking to someone when I was 20 years of age, what happens if England under 21 call you up? And it sounds disrespectful. I don't mean it to sound disrespectful, but, but, but I, I wouldn't have wanted to have played because I just felt it wasn't right for me. You know, how strongly I felt inside. Right.
1: So if you if your playing career, and look, you played at a very high level with Arsenal, if your playing career had gone a different way mm. and England came calling when you were 23, 24,
0: do you think you'd have turned it down? Do you know what? It's really tough to say that because it never happened. Mm. But I know how I feel. Yeah. I, know, I know how I felt and I know how I feel today. Um, you know, I was recently spoken to about someone from another national side to do some scouting for a national side which wasn't Ireland, and I said, I couldn't do that. If someone from the, the FAI come to me and contacted me about doing some scouting for the FAI, I would, I would do it. But I couldn't do it for another national side, if that makes sense. Because then if I did that, i feel that everything i said in the last 40 odd years wouldn't be the truth.
1: Like I touched on your playing career. like you, you did play at a very high standard. Your debut was with Arsenal. Uh, I think it was against Bristol City. It was looking. And you're coming on to a team that had Liam Brady... Frank Stapleton, David O'Leary. For somebody with your Irish heritage, like that, must have just felt like living the dream, walking out onto that pitch.
0: Long story, it didn't feel like living the dream, but it's 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 too long a story to talk go through here. But I always suffered from this feeling that I wasn't really good enough and didn't belong. I'm, listen, I remember my first touch for Arsenal. Liam, hit, Liam hit me a ball. Must have been forty yards across the pitch. And it's coming out of the sky and it's 40 yards. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, this is coming towards me. There's thirty, forty thousand 40,000 people in there. So I controlled it on my chest and it went out of play. That was my first touch in pro football. And we won the game. Um, I think we won 3-0 and, and Liam came up to me afterwards. He said, Oh, you got a nice win bonus there. And I was 17 years of age. Uh, yeah, Liam was definitely playing then. I remember that because he was, he gave me the first pass in pro football. Yeah. The,
1: the, imposter syndrome which you've spoken about before you, you always think from the outside that like, when you land so you, you, you're lacking a little bit of belief but then you're on a pitch with like Liam Brady you're on a pitch mm. with Frank Stapleton, you've made it to the first team Yeah. when you look back now how is it that that bit of confidence never clicked in you play what 50-60 games for Arsenal
0: played 60 or 70 games yeah,
1: yeah like that's at, at the very elite level of the sport was there any moment during those few years where you actually felt comfortable where you did feel like you belonged
0: I was always in and out of the team really so I always my thing was and I did this even through my management career even when I was doing success successful I was always fighting myself I was always fighting what was going on in my head you know, trying to stop these demons that were coming in, waking up in the morning, you didn't play for Ireland, you haven't got an Irish cap, what is going, it's not good enough, you should have done this. So I was always bashing myself over the head. There was that. And then there was the fact that, you know, am I good enough? Do you, You're not good enough. And this constant, like, washing machine head going on and on and on. Um and my thought processes were like, it was really, really difficult, but I didn't tell anyone. Yeah. I spoke to someone when I was 12 years of age and I was at QPR and I said to one of the coaches, I said, I don't feel good today. I don't feel right. And he went, you've got to be right every day, every day. You've got to be on it. You've got to be absolutely spot on. And I thought to myself, that's the last time I will be speaking to a coach. And I didn't speak to anybody again until I was 53 when I opened up to my wife and said I was struggling over my drink stuff that I would talk about. And, uh, And I speak today, I open up and talk today, and and that's the message I kind of want to come out with and talk about it. When I talk in my presentations, please don't stay quiet.
1: It is 40 years ago now, so it is a very different generation, and the way we talk about mental health is a very different thing. Yeah. By the sounds of that, actually, if there were more forward-thinking coaches or coaches who had a maybe more holistic view, the sort of view you have as a coach, that would they have been able to help you in, in the mid eighties?
0: I don't know, because they weren't there.
1: Mm. Um you, you you wonder how many players lost potential because yeah. of the struggles and that football had that culture and still it feels has it to a large degree of as you say, you've got to be on it every day.
0: Yeah no I, I still believe it's there that culture. I still think that um I still think that there's there's players coaching staff, managers, who could stay quiet, who struggle, who really struggle. i just done a mentoring thing with the League Managers Association. So, you know, I go out and speak to coaches and managers just to sort of talk to them, really, and find out what's going on. And I wish I had that as a manager. I certainly wish I had that as a coach. My nephew now plays for Chelsea. He's 12 years of age and... Uh, you know, he's been there since he was 10, 9 and ten, he's just signed a new contract there. So, you know, it's I'm 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 blessed that I might be able to pass on some stuff to him because of you know, I see what he's living through and I thought, wow, that's what I live through. That's exact I know exactly where he's at now at this stage in his career. Your
1: style of management when you start moving from being a scout to being a coach at Reading to, to getting the job on a full time basis. How much had you thought about what sort of coach, what sort of manager you wanted to be?
0: Yeah, so I'd been managed by a lot of people who shouted a lot. Mm. Um, when I first started ma- managing, and I started managing in the conference, and I was that manager shouting a lot, and uh, I thought, "What the hell is this? I have become the person that I didn't particularly like," and I realised that quite quickly. So when I was at Reading. I wasn't that person. Um, I was very good at, I think I was good at, uh, I, I was I, I was good at pointing, to, saying to the team, listen, we can win this game at Anfield, we can win at Man United, we can win at Liverpool. Um, I had quite a big ego as far as that was concerned, but at the same time, I had the tiniest self-esteem you could imagine. So I'm sitting in the dressing room at Anfield or at... at um, Match uh, for Wednesday, and it happened once. And I'm thinking to myself, "We're going to get beat six nil live on TV. This is going to be absolutely humiliating." And actually, that happened once when I was playing. When I was manager at Leeds, we got beat six nil. Um, once it happened in my career, I, I've managed about 500 games, and I did. I remember being in that dressing room, and it happened to me all the time. I was when you, when I was, I hated being on my own. I literally hated being, on, and I was always on my own away from in the dressing room away from home And I tried to. To try cope with that sort of feeling of being on my own before you walk out onto the onto the pitch, and I was that was a real drama for me between quarter past two and three and uh, quarter to three. It, from the outside,
1: that that just doesn't it, it doesn't make sense to people who would have looked at you because again, all we see is the public side, and it, it feels like. There's almost three parts of your life. There's the public-facing side, which is you, the guy who goes and match of the day after the game, and you have to put a brave face on it, and you can't show any vulnerability whatsoever. There's a professional side where there's insane pressures coming from above, from uh, chairmen who at times can be erratic, depending at the club you're at, but you have to keep things together for your players and for all the staff at the club. And then the private side that we just don't see that... It's, it's carnage behind the scenes, it feels like, at, at certain times. It, like, there's such a, a struggle going on that you cannot let out. Like, that. that's an, an incredible balancing act that you have to go through for, it felt like, for your entire managerial career.
0: And my playing career. Same. Um, it, it's not carnage. It's carnage in my head. Right. That's the, that's, the, that's the thing. So in my head, it's carnage. It's not carnage around me. So what I was good at was kind of looking after my staff, Looking after my players, um, but I forgot one person, and that was me. And um, I realised today that you know, on on, every day I wake up, I've got to do whatever I've got to do to make sure that get in the best possible headspace. And I've got a bit of peace now um, for the first time in my life. For the last eight years or so, I've literally got a bit of peace, which is just oh, it's I, I live quite a simple life now, and it's I thought that. You know, if I had won cap for Ireland, that would have be the difference. If I became a Premier League manager, which I did, that would change it. If I got a bigger car, that would be the difference. If I got a bigger house, if I got an extension to the bigger house, that would make the difference. All of this stuff, you know, the Irish one will never happen, but, you know, all of this stuff I thought would make the difference to me. None of it did. And none of all of it is external. All of it's external stuff. And actually, I realise it's an inside job. I've got to look after what's going on inside me
1: all your former players seem to speak so highly of you as well and you know checked in with a couple of them over the last few days and again just a real warmth and affection for how you dealt with them and how you assisted them during your career you were obviously just you were you were giving so much to so many other people when you look across football now and management do you do you see a lot of people who you feel might have your type of personality but just haven't seen the light
0: yet i don't know do you know what I, I, I really don't know is the answer to that. Sometimes I think it. Uh, I'd never say it in public because I don't know. Um, I thought I was the only one in the world who felt the way that I felt. Mm. Since I've come out and started talking, I realise I'm not the only one. I mean, I do my presentations. I leave my email up on the thing, and people leave me. I say I felt like that. I felt this, and I felt that. And that's a kind of. I don't want them to be going through struggles, but it's kind of a relief for me. Because I think, well, oh, I'm not the only one in the world who felt like that and, um, or feels like that, even on a daily basis. I, I know what I have to do now. I know I, know I have to reach out and, and ring someone and say, look, I'm struggling. So two days ago, I just got back from Scotland. I was on a trip and I came back and I spoke to my wife and said, I'm struggling today. And she went, you'll be fine. You know, it'll pass. And, you know, that feeling of just to speak out loud and say, it's okay to say, oh, I'm not, I'm not in a good place. And I woke up the next day, I was fine. Um, so it goes back to the same thing open your mouth for me I have to open my mouth and talk about it
1: and you have been incredibly honest over recent years publicly about the struggles that you had with alcohol, with your mental health when you talk to people who worked with you very closely because you are in such a bubble when you're at a at a football club and you're seeing each other every day were, were other coaches, staff members players, were they shocked when they, they heard about what was going on
0: internally? Well, so Nigel Gibbs was my assistant manager. He knew me better than anyone. Nick Hammond was my director of football. They didn't know. And I did a presentation and Nigel was there recently in Reading. We did a we, we did three nights. I did three nights and did this presentation and talked through the story of what happened and all the success or perceived success, et cetera. And Nigel was asked a question by someone, did you know? And he said, no. And no one knew. The only person who knew was my wife, um, w and that, that was the only person who knew. Apart from that, no one knew off the ball daily a home for your favorite podcasts from off the ball the performance rankings you had to be there crappy quiz and a slight tangent it's incredibly useful and why not do it just because you think it's agricultural subscribe to the off the ball daily podcast feed right now football on off the ball
1: with sky all the football you love in one place across sky sports bt sport and premier sports you were a bloody good manager. Like this time, uh, 10 years ago, you were you were still in charge at Reading. I think it's coming up on the 10th anniversary of, of leaving, but you you got them to a playoff final. Then you'd gone and got promoted the year after that. You'd gone on this brilliant run and win in 15 of 17 games. There was a uh, You were probably at a stage for a while where you're everyone's second favourite team, where people liked watching mm. Reading. and There was a good uh, quality of football. It's crazy how quickly it can fall apart in the professional sense I I read an interview uh, a piece from the day you left Reading and Mm -hmm. it was well, this guy is not going to be out of work for very long, he will have his pick of clubs you end up at Leeds quite quickly was it that case when you walked out of of Reading in sort of March when you left Reading in March 2013 of you know what uh, I'll be alright or was that inner voice telling you well actually that was my shot at the big time
0: No, no, I had bigger, I had bigger issues going on really that people didn't know about. So, I'll tell you a little story. Um, in 2013, January 2013, um, I won the Manager of the Month in the Premier League, mm. and uh, and I came, I had the trophy under my arm, and I put the trophy on the table, and my wife was there, and I said, "Oh, Sarah, I've just." The manager of the month, for Premier League, put the trophy down. She went, Well done. And then uh, she said, uh, Can you put the bins out? I said, Sorry. She went, Can you put the bins out? I said, What do you mean, put the bins out? I said, Well, she said, If you don't put the bins out, the bin men come tomorrow, they won't be there. So you need to put the bins out. And uh, at that point, I thought, now I know what the problem is. She's the problem. Two weeks later, I walked away from her for probably a year and a bit. And I've been married 27 years. So I had all of that going on. And, you know, this woman who's just the most amazing woman I walked away from plus my kids just because I just trying to fix whatever it was. It's the saddest story. And I, and I've, you know, I reflect back on that person. I think, wow, who was that person who did that? That was obviously me who did that. And I feel, um, I look back at that time and I I, I, I look back, but I don't stare because I can't. It's not good for me. And I'm, I'm very blessed that she took me back again after about a year and a bit after Leeds finished. But I had all of that going on as well. So when I lost my job in March 2013, literally three or four weeks later, I went to Leeds. She didn't feel I know that from what was said now that I was ready to go to Leeds. And actually did a half decent job at Leeds mm. until Christmas. We were fifth in the league. And then the Massimo Cellino came in and all of that. And I'm trying to deal with this ownership situation. And I, I couldn't I can't even describe to you what was going on there. It was it was very, very difficult for want of better words. And I was on my own.
1: I was just going to say the fact that in that job, but were you actually on your own in that job? Could you have shared the load? Was there a staff around you, or was it someone no, saying not- at leads at the time with the ownership that actually you're thinking these people's livelihoods? They all rest on my shoulders and getting this team winning.
0: Yeah, so I had great staff. Nigel was with me. Nigel Gibbs was with me. Neil Redfern, great guys. Lucy Ward, Lucy, was Nigel's partner at the time. Lucy was, is a co-commentator now for BT Sport. Mm-hmm. She's right up there as a top commentator. She was amazing. You know, these people didn't even know they were helping me, but they were helping me. Um, you know, they were very. They were. were niger was great, and but it was. I was trying to manage what was going on with the ownership as well as what was going on on the pitch. But the ownership was more difficult than what was going on on the pitch. And then we started to lose games, and like we lost against Rochdale in the FA Cup, and there's a, uh, and we lost. Then we lost, and I thought it doesn't get any worse than this. And then the following week, we get smashed by Sheffield Wednesday, 6-0 on the telly. On Sky, they show two games of Readings. One when we got beat 6-0 by Sheffield Wednesday, and the other when we lose the playoff final when I was at Reading. It looks like I've never won a game as a manager. <laughs> but those two games keep coming up, and I'm like, oh, my God, is there not one game that we can show we actually won? Yeah. Um, but those two games, which were horrendous. So, um, yeah, I, I, I just... Uh, I found it. it, it was... It was very, very challenging, but Leeds is a is a great club. It's a monster club, and the supporters were actually very, very good to me. Very, I, I'm very grateful that they were very good because we had a period of time between January, February, March. We couldn't win any games. We were shocking, and then we started to win a couple. At tw- the last five games, when he, when Celino, the owner, had the club, the, my record was th- our record was three wins, one draw, one defeat. Now, that, made mind up.
1: now that Leeds are back, it's hard to fully remember almost even though it's uh, only eight nine years ago just how much of a basket case it had been at that time like i think you were given a sort of three-year brief to rebuild the club from the bottom up like they had no real scouting system uh-huh. you were having to borrow analysis from other clubs their scouting system was basically whatever names were on your phone
0: yeah basically yeah we it, yeah, it, it, there was no structure there. There was no infrastructure. That's why I signed a three-year contract. It's like, you know, it's like Steve Coppel in 2005-06 got Reading promoted. It took him three years. Mm. The year that we went up in 2012, it took us two and a half, three years. So it's like that two. And that was the thing that leads. We, you know, you need that time. And, and managers don't get that time now. We all know that. So if you're trying to actually build a football club as a manager, it's virtually impossible. You know, your Alex Ferguson's and your Arsene Wenger's of this world, your managers. Arteta's getting it now. Mike. Michael Arteta's getting that opportunity at Arsenal. I hope that the um, Steve Cooper at Nottingham Forest, they've backed him. Looks like they might give him that opportunity there as well. But it's, they're few and far between.
1: I remember reading the Michael Calvin book uh, Living on a Volcano which you know covered more than a dozen managers and their stories over the course of a season and and you were one of them and it's remarked upon of all the and there's so many completely insane stories uh, within that of how managers are treatment what happened with you and Chilino at the very end where you know you're the takeover's happening you're getting fired the takeover's not happening you're not in for a couple of days next thing you're back in charge again and then how it all ended where he basically accused you of just going off on holidays at the end of the season and all this is very public like this is again it's it's Sky Sports news people aren't seeing what's going on behind the scenes that's all they're seeing is the is the 40 second snippet of him being interviewed saying that you've basically given up on the gig is sort of what he was implying you've gone off on holidays we don't know if he's coming back or what the plans for pre-season are like that with the mental state you're in at the time, that must have been incredibly hard to get through.
0: So that was the only, th- that was the thing that I really, t- I try not to take things personal, but that was pers- that felt personal. So my mum was really, really ill at home and I had to get back from where I lived in Harrogate when the season finished to go and see her. She was ill and uh, I was accused of going on holiday. No, I wasn't there and the season had finished. I knew what we were trying to do. And my mum died in the June uh, of, that, of that year, like six weeks, four or five weeks later. I hadn't seen her for a long time. I need to go and see her. So when all of that stuff started to come out about he's gone on holiday, that hurt. And I thought I couldn't say anything because I just, I, did, I didn't want to go public on something like that. I had more important things to do. I was looking after my mum. I wanted to be where my mum was. So that felt personal. Um mm-hmm. And that wasn't right. And to be fair to him, a little while later, he did—he wrote me a letter to say he was sorry about my mum's passing and stuff, and stuff like that. So I appreciated that. But that it was kind of stuff that did—that didn't need to happen. Um, he, he made his mind up in the January 2000. I was going to be gone. I knew I was gone. Once once someone an owner sacks you, you're a dead man walking. And all the players knew that I would be gone as well. So, you know, I literally could write a book about that that six months when he was in charge, about that period of time. I could do a whole presentation on that six months in charge.
1: You mentioned some Premier League managers there. Um, one that I was thinking of was obviously... You know Graham Potter and the position he's in at the moment, and uh, your path isn't isn't the same uh, by any stretch. But you know you obviously spent time playing in Sweden, and he went off coaching in Sweden, and like, he was on this show a couple of years ago. It's just so interesting and in how he never expected to find himself as a Premier League manager at Brighton at the time, and now he finds himself at the big gig. And he he seems to have that that human touch as well. He puts so much stock in his personal relationships. With the players, and he looks at things a different way. Like I think on your pro license, did you go to Google instead of going to a, yeah. a club to to look at the way they worked, and you yeah. know, you know had real freedom for the players within certain boundaries? Like the criticism that Graham Potter's got in recent weeks is that you know he's not an alpha, he's not an authority. If you're at Chelsea, if you're at a big club. You know, you need to be the man at the centre of everything. If the decision goes against you, you can't just take that decision. You need to be out there ranting and raving. You need to be in the referee's face. If you cared about the club, if you know want to manage at a big club, that's what you got to do. Yeah. Which just doesn't seem, in this modern world of modern management, we say we want it, but then actually,
0: when it's right there in front of us, we criticise it. Well, you've had the same situation. There's Mikel Ateta. He's jumping up and down on the line, and he's getting criticised for jumping up and down on the line. And, you know, and then Graham Potter is stood there. He's doing his work. You know, do you think the players at Arsenal can listen to what Mikel Ateta is saying when he's on the pitch? Uh, Probably the answer to that is not really. Can they listen to to Graham Potter? He'll pass his stuff on on the pitch. You know, as a manager, you can make a difference before the game. You can make a difference with your substitutions. You can make a difference at half-time. And then you go and do your press conference where you can make a difference because when you're doing your press conference, you're actually talking to the players. You know, you're not necessarily talking to the 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 press, you're saying, look, this, this, and this. But my thing was, I need to make sure I'm get I'm giving a message out to my players. We're gonna be all right here. That's the key. Um so it's a lot of macho stuff talked about what what a manager should be doing, jumping up and down on the line or not. Be yourself. That's the most important thing, and he's being himself. Fair play to him.
1: So, since you left Leeds, you, you had a short spell back at Reading, but for the last six years or so, you've been out of frontline management. How do you feel about the game now?
0: Oh, I love. I, I I've got. I, I love watching football. I like. I like. I love the the game. I don't like some of the stuff that goes on within the game. Um, I don't like certain things. I think the game in a way, yeah. Stephen Cork put up a, um, a post about stats yesterday that I looked at on LinkedIn and it talked about all these analytic stats that we've got, this, that, and the other, but we don't talk about you know, the heart of a player, the character of a player, another player helping another player out, a manager speaking to a player and how the manager makes him feel. And to me, that's the soul of football. And there's a little bit with all the stuff that we've got on the computer where we've lost, the the game's lost its soul a little bit. And I'd like to to think we can bring a little bit of that, a bit of that back. You know, I'd like to see a club where everyone's together, whatever level, the owner, the staff, the players. And actually between 2000 and 2012 at Reading, we had that. We had a, a great owner, We had four managers, we had Alan Pardew, we had Steve Koppel, we had Brendan Rodgers, we had myself, four managers in that time. We knew we didn't have a lot of money, but we knew what the criteria was. We had a great director of football and everyone was going in the same direction. And uh, listen, there was egos, there's always egos in football. But most people, most of the lads put their egos to bed when they got to the training ground. We signed players like Ian Hart. Mm. You know, Ian Hart, I had Ian for two years. He, he was at Carlisle and apparently he was finished. He was unbelievable. I'm talking unbelievable for me. Not, as a, not just as a player, but as a person. I didn't realise how much fight and hunger he still had at 33 years of age. And what a player, by the way. What a signing he was for 75 grand
1: so when you're and you spent the last few years as a scout with Arsenal I think your title was International Senior Scout so I presume you're doing a lot of travelling around the world and I assume there's a lot of money ball stats within that when you're trying to assess players how much when you're going back reporting on someone you've seen are you able to talk about well he might be lacking when we're looking at the numbers but I've seen something from the games there's a heart there's a fight there's something in there there's a Shane Long in there that we can make something out of is is
0: is that allowed in modern day scouting? It is for me. That's all I talk about. That's what I do. That's me. So I talk about what I feel, my gut feel, having seen the player. Um and I just put I put a young boy into Orient recently. I look I watch a lot of lower league football over here. And I saw this lad. I've watched him three or four times. He's a wonderful human being, centre half, eighteen years of age, and he's just signed eighteen month contract at Orient. Um and I'm sure he's going to be a real success. Um, so I, I still back myself for what I see. I can't talk to the stats people about what the numbers look like. They're, what used to happen at Arsenal sometimes is that the, the numbers guys, the data guys would say, can you go and watch him? His numbers are really good. And we'd go and watch them, And that was us working together. So it's all about collaborating together. The stats and the data and everything is good. But actually having people on the ground and watching games as well is, is for me, absolute necessity.
1: From the way you've spoken, Ireland and playing for Ireland, managing for Ireland, it's far more than just an itch you would have liked to have scratched. There has been periods over the last decade where you've been probably the bookies' favourites. You've been strongly linked with the Ireland job. I think when both Giovanni Trapattoni left and Martin O'Neill got the job, and then around the time of the Martin O'Neill era as well, your name was probably still in the mix. Have you ever spoken to people about the Ireland manager's job and is that still something that you... You dream about, or maybe even feel, can still become a reality.
0: No, I don't. I don't see that as a reality now. I mean, I've been out of management since 2016. Um, yeah, if I could do anything to help, then I would a bit of scouting or whatever. Of course, I would. I don't, it'd be an honour to do that, just to get um, a coat with a badge on, you know. Mm. It'd be an honour. But I think, I think for me, it's like uh, in 2013. I think was the closest was when uh, I think Martin got the job. And I would have been in the frame for that. But I just signed for Leeds at the time. And I felt a loyalty to the club. It was September, I think, when it happened. I don't know. I don't know when it was. Yeah, but it
1: was. Yeah, it was that time of the year.
0: Yeah, I remember it. And it, it was, it, I felt a real loyalty to i I just signed a three year club. I couldn't just walk away. Um, and I wasn't offered it. Martin O'Neill got the job anyway. So uh, that would have been the closest I'd have got to it, to be absolutely honest. Yeah. Uh, Brian, it's been a
1: real. Pleasure to talk to you, and uh, thanks for being so open and honest. Are, are you still getting back to, to Ireland to watch matches? Like You you did the hard yards. Kevin Doyle was telling me when you were scouting him when he was at Cork, you used to go up to Finn Harps to watch him.
0: Yeah, I've been everywhere. I saw him. Yeah, we signed Alan Bennett, Dave Mooney, Kevin Doyle, uh, Pierce Sweeney, Shane Long. And I'm always banging on to people. I said, you need to get across the water on a Friday night to watch the games over there. Yeah. And it's so important, you know, to do that. I think, I think there's players everywhere. And Ireland was a brilliant one for us. I mean, we, uh, we got some great... And actually, I was in Ireland about three weeks ago. I did a presentation at ESB uh, in Dublin. And the amazing people there. Um, that was great. So I was over about two or three weeks ago. Uh, but I used to spend every summer in Clare. We had a farm in Clare. My family had a farm in Clare, so I was always over there. Um, but every time I went over there, I got an English accent. They call me English and when <laughs> I come back. Here, <laughs> then when I come back here, I was a plastic paddy. So you know, it didn't help this kind of so much. This sort of who the hell are you? That sort of thing. Yeah. Um, you can't. You can't help your accent. <laughs>
1: Uh, no, no, but um listen, it's uh it's been great to talk to you. And uh, next time you're in Dublin, we'd love to have you in for a chat as well. Uh, do give us a shout, Brian McDermott. Thanks a million for joining us.
0: No, thanks, Nathan. Football on, off the ball with Sky. All the football you love
1: in one place across Sky Sports, BT Sport, and Premier Sports.